All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome. Thank you for joining me for this session entitled Biblical Hospitality, a Qualification for Spiritual Leaders. And you'll see in a moment that that uh, is primarily focused uh, on men, but also includes women and all those who aspire to live godly lives. So it's good to see both men and women uh, here with us today. Um, Before we get started, just a couple things you should know. Obviously, the fire alarm has been going off uh, the last half hour. Uh, I've been informed that uh, there's not a fire, so that's good news. I think you guys all figured that out. But if it goes off, they're going to alert us if there really is a concern, so we'll just press on as best as we can. So I know it's distracting, but we'll try to redeem the time, and they will certainly notify us if we need to evacuate the building in case there really is a concern. It brings to mind uh, some great advice my wife and I got uh, in premarital counseling, and that was, no matter what happens on your wedding day, don't let it ruin your day. It'll just become part of those memories that you talk about. And uh, for those of you who've had crazy experiences, unexpected experiences on your wedding day, you know what I'm talking about. For us, it was my wife in the lobby of the church we were getting married at, and some kids pulled the fire alarm. So as the music's playing, the parents have been set, the whole thing's going to start, and you stand there in that moment thinking, do we need to evacuate or do we need to press on? And Thankfully, it was a smaller church campus, and they cut the culprits, and uh, we went ahead with our wedding ceremony. So we're not going to let the fire alarm stand in our way this morning uh, unless we're alerted that there's a real concern. So the second thing we want to share with you before we get into our topic is an opportunity. As many of you know, I serve as the president of the Master's Academy International. That's the ministry of seminary graduates around the world who have sought to serve pastors in the countries that God's called them to, uh, to provide the same kind of training, pastoral training, so that they can have sound pulpits in their churches, see their churches mature according to a biblical philosophy of ministry. And uh, we rejoice that today we have uh, 18 schools around the world, uh, approximately a num- num- uh, an additional 25 schools in development. And uh, those schools, for the most part, are established by Grace Church missionaries sent out through our church. And so I know you care about our missionaries, you pray for them. Uh, there's a number, as I look around the room, of friends who are serving around the world or come to the seminary or hope to go out and serve as well, so it's good to have you this morning. But this is a wonderful ministry, collective ministry of Grace Church and the Master's Seminary together uh, with this work called the Master's Academy International. One of the things that we believe is clear in Scripture is that prayer must undergird any kind of gospel endeavor, any kind of missionary endeavor. And so as God intends to build his church to the advancement of the gospel to the nations, uh, the one thing that all believers can participate in, and that is the ministry of prayer. Um, There's always a need for people to donate their services or their financial resources, of course, But we decided as a ministry that our focus in what we call our mid-year campaign uh, is going to be invite every believer who's part of this large network, this army of of churches and church members across the country to engage in prayer, and not only to pray for the work that God's doing in those countries, but invite those in those countries, the faculty, the students, and the churches uh, that we're serving to pray for us. So uh, this upcoming week, starting today, is a week that we've entitled Together We Pray, 
And if you're not already following TMAI, you can sign up today. You can go to our website, sign up for Together We Pray. You're going to get daily updates, prayer requests from uh, the five regions of the world. So Monday through Friday, you're going to get updates from a different region, prayer request. Uh, you'll see exactly what God's doing. And we would ask that you consider joining us in prayer. There's going to be little video clips, testimonies, a uh, number of ways you can participate. Uh, on Friday, there's going to be a special event a recorded event where it's a, an hour and a half uh, leading you through the uh, activity of prayer, either personally or as a small group, your Bible study. Uh, many churches are participating in this. We have about 65 churches across the country joining our church in this endeavor. And um, that special event's going to be on Friday. So all the information is there. Uh, we have some resources for you in the back. This is a little table tent, they call them, that you can put on your breakfast table as a reminder to pray in, in what region of the day. And if you've got your phone with you, you can actually look at the prayer request from that day and just lead your family in prayer on behalf of uh, the work around the world. We have a little prayer guide also that you can have. And so this is just an invitation uh, from me to you to join us in this endeavor entitled Together We Pray. So um, David Chow, who's organize all of this on our behalf of TMI. Do you have anything else you would add? Great. Thank you, David. As we get started here on our session, uh, I do have a handout. So if you do not get a handout, raise your hand, okay? And the guys in the back are going to make sure they get that into your hand. I'm going to try to cover a lot of ground, and sometimes that feels a little overwhelming to somebody who's sitting there trying to take notes. So I want to give you a handout. You can take that home. You can follow the PowerPoint slides, and afterwards, if you'd like any additional information, I'm happy to uh, provide it to you. If you just email me at TMAI, uh, I'm glad to make that uh, available to you. Well, let's open in a word of prayer, and we'll jump into our study. Father, we thank you that you'd vote this hour for us to consider this topic We've called biblical hospitality. Thank you for each person's here, their love for Christ, their commitment to honor him in their own life. And as we grow together to see what your word has to say for us in this regard, help us then to know how we can best use our resources, our gifts, our homes, uh, our energies, and even our finances to serve those in need in such a way that puts the gospel on display. And I pray, God, as we do that in a variety of ways, in our homes, but also in partnership with others here at our church, that we would bring honor to you. Help me to be clear in this presentation and helpful to uh, each person who's here, and that, Lord, you would just accomplish your will through us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, biblical hospitality. Let me give you the big idea, okay? This is what I want you to walk away with today. Hospitality, as we see in Scripture, is the demonstration of the greater spiritual reality that God welcomes and serves those in need who have no ability to merit or reciprocate his mercy and kindness. I'm going to say that again. Hospitality, biblical hospitality, is the demonstration of the greatest spiritual reality or the greater spiritual reality that God welcomes and serves those in need who have no ability to merit or reciprocate his mercy and kindness. And you're going to see very quickly that biblical hospitality is the living example of the gospel. That's what I want you to walk away with. 
Now we're going to look at it in the Old Testament, the New Testament. We're going to look at it in the life of Christ. We're going to talk about it practically in this session. But biblical hospitality is directly related to the demonstration of the heart of God as expressed in the gospel. It is a commandment given to God's people who have experienced such mercy and proclaim a gospel of mercy. So that they both proclaim and illustrate this great truth. This is a life of Christian integrity. It's one thing to proclaim the gospel and God's great grace and mercy towards those who don't deserve it and can't reciprocate it. But then to demonstrate it allows us to live a life of integrity where our gospel proclamation is validated or verified by our demonstration of this great truth. Therefore, it's especially necessary for those who are spiritual leaders, and I mean those who aspire towards godliness. Yes, beginning with elders, but expected of all those who desire to glorify God. And we'll see this morning that hospitality was required of the Jews in the Old Testament. They were the children of God. They identified with Jehovah as distinct from all the other gods of the Gentile nations. And so the way that they lived in obedience to him was to demonstrate his character and put him on display before gods who are known not as merciful and just, but as what? Vengeful, wrathful, not near and intimate and relational, but distant. And it was also modeled by Christ himself. And then following his example, particularly the apostles and disciples, we see this assigned to the church in the New Testament. Now, I just want to say before we get into this that the idea or the practice of extending a welcome or entertaining Christian friends in your home or at your table is not wrong or bad. But that aspect of practicing hospitality doesn't fully capture the full biblical intent of practicing hospitality. And so we want to look more carefully at this. We want to grow in the practice of it so that we complement this wonderful picture of fellowship among believers around such things as the love feast or the meals in the church or the service and ministry towards one another. This is great and tremendous and certainly commanded of us in Scripture. But that's not the same in quality or in focus that Biblical hospitality, with regard to the primary emphasis of it in the scriptures, is displayed. And so what we see unfolding in scripture is this idea. Those who do not have the resources to reciprocate a kindness or a gift or the meeting of a need, or they cannot deserve it or merit of their own accord, provide the best opportunity to model God's love as demonstrated in the gospel. Romans 5.8 tells us what? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. According to John 15, the greatest demonstration of God's love towards us is that he laid down his life for us as his friends. So if the greatest demonstration of God's love towards us was when we were vile sinners, where every good deed in our eyes was like filthy rags in the sight of God, Did we deserve his mercy and grace? Did we have any ability to merit that mercy and grace? We did not. And so in human terms, when we find and pursue opportunities to give to others out of humility and generosity, 
the character of Christian love that thinks of others more than ourselves, and we put that on display towards those in need, we have the best opportunity to demonstrate the greater spiritual truth of the gospel. If you look at Christ's public ministry, he often used parables, didn't he? To illustrate a greater spiritual truth, he would say the kingdom of heaven is like. And he would point to something that people could physically see and experience. And it's exactly the case with practicing biblical hospitality. As we do this, it's as so we can say in our own lives, the kingdom of heaven is like this. We demonstrate it. Now, the opposite is true. To the extent we don't practice it and demonstrate it, we rob the world of a clear picture of the greater spiritual truth. And so it is important that we look at this topic and we understand exactly what it is that God would have for us to know. But let's begin by maybe correcting certain ideas about hospitality before we look at it biblically. When we look at hospitality in our current world, number one, it's typically driven by marketing and media-based agendas, which at their roots are what? Driven by sales and economics and business aims. And so when we look at a contemporary concept of hospitality, images of Martha Stewart and that whole industry where the focus is placed on setting a table and to doing that with such creativity and such artistic effort, uh, it almost seems like it's a standard that's unachievable, particularly for the typical husband and wife who are trying to raise a few kids and just trying to make sure the, the toys are picked up. How do you actually aspire to what you see in the magazines and what's presented? That's compounded by social media with what is put forth in um, certain Pinterest boards. And so what we've seen typically today is the idea of hospitality is primarily driven by the standard of, of artistic expertise that can place a great burden on the individual believer when they think they have to aspire to do that, to meet an expectation of entertaining. And even just with regard to the word entertaining, which typically dominates the idea of hospitality, it can be caught up in this idea of trying to impress others. You're entertaining them. You're keeping their attention, their interest. You're keeping it captivated by creativity and doing all kinds of things. Now, that doesn't mean if you have folks over to your home, you shouldn't put some effort into it. You know, But what we need to know is we're a little bit paralyzed in the church today by certain definitions of hospitality, or I should say certain expectations that come to us from the popular media that don't come to us from Scripture. And so we want to recognize that. Now, if you're creative and artistic and that's an expression of love and interest, fantastic. You can set a beautiful table. There's nothing wrong with it. But I think you understand my point. When you feel the pressure to do that, to fulfill the biblical command to practice hospitality, then something is out of priority and something is out of focus. If you've had the experience like I've had where someone has kindly invited us into their home, and you find that they didn't spend all their energies in making sure that all the furniture was polished and all their crystal was out. There was something about just eating off of paper plates and being with them where the focus was on the relationship and the personal care and love and affection. My need was met. I ate a hamburger or lasagna or whatever they were serving. That wasn't the primary issue for me. But it was the, the beauty of being loved 
and being invited into a home and a relationship that had far more impact than the table setting itself. So we have to recover a priority in our understanding that isn't driven by the secular media. The second thing that influences us from our culture when it comes to the idea of hospitality has to do with the hospitality industry. This one slide simply illustrates when we say the word hospitality, think of all the things that that includes in the hospitality industry. And we'll understand that the hospitality industry today did derive from the original practice of hospitality. That's where the word comes from and the practice of meeting needs. But look at all the terms that are used there. Okay. Luxury, okay. tourism, a concierge desk at a hotel, lifestyle issues. And so when you think about the hospitality industry, which is a great industry by way of a calling that you can go into if that's your interest, and you can study to do that and and work in that field to the glory of God, that's not a bad thing. But we don't want to let the secular hospitality industry drive all of our thinking about this biblical issue. Okay, So I just want to name those things because it tends to uh, capitalize our understanding of this important issue. And I would say, again, it really has the ability to sometimes paralyze or even compete with Christians practicing hospitality in their own home. Another thing I want to point to as we get started is we tend to, even in our churches, primarily think of hospitality as a female issue. In part, that's derived by the social influences of that the popularization of entertaining and these ideas. Part of it has to do that often practicing hospitality includes the home and includes the making of a meal and provision in that regard, which often is uh, the role that the wife or the lady plays in the home. So she plays a key role in this. But what we'll see is that in large regard, most men, most Christian men see it as a women's issue and therefore do not sense any personal responsibility in this regard, to practice it in their own home, to initiate it, to lead it, to work with their wives in the practicing of this. And that's what we want to recover is a right understanding of what is the role of men and women in practicing hospitality. Um, Just say it this way. Hospitality is not primarily a women's issue, okay? So guys, you're not off the hook. If anything, I'm going to set the hook deeper in you today, okay? And hospitality does not demand a fancy, expensive investment to practice. This wrong understanding places an enormous amount of pressure on women, both of these, when it's seen only as a women's issue, their responsibility, and it requires some kind of real extravagant demonstration to practice the simple command. This is especially true for young wives and moms with limited time and energy and most likely financial resources to achieve the media ideals that they see around them. In addition, it can lead to them placing more time and energy in entertaining than the spiritual focus intended in welcoming others into the home. It's much more important that your heart's prepared than just your table being prepared. Now, a well-ordered home, a well-planned meal, 
to meet the needs of your guests is a wonderful expression of love and care and service to them. But that can become the dominating issue at the expense of just having a heart that's prepared to welcome, to serve, and to minister to those in the home. And that's true both for men and women. So I gave you a handout. I'm going to say a number of things that are in the handout, some additional things as well, so you can follow along. But I've entitled this session, Hospitality as a Qualifications for Spiritual Leaders. Alexander Strauch, if you're familiar with him, who's authored probably the most used and most helpful books on being an elder and being a deacon, also wrote a book entitled The Hospitality Commands. And Alex says this, he says, hospitality is love in action. Hospitality is flesh and muscle on bones of love. It's interesting to me, this man who has spent a majority of his ministry speaking to the topic of training and equipping elders, pastors, and deacons, wrote a book entitled The Hospitality Commands. And in speaking to Alex, he affirmed It's because this is one of the most neglected qualifications for spiritual leaders in the church. With that in mind, we want to look at the texts of Scripture that speak of practicing hospitality and recognize that it primarily focuses on the role of men as examples in their home and in the house of God. 1 Timothy 3, verses 2 through 5, read, An overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So do you see the association that's made clearly by Paul? He's making the association that a man who is to be entrusted with leading the household of God, the church, must first demonstrate that he's practicing these biblical principles in his own home. And in that list of qualifications to lead the house of God, the church of God, is this command to be hospitable. So Paul makes it very clear that this is not just a women's issue. It is a matter of qualification for men who are in spiritual positions of leadership. Now, we focus a lot, don't we, when we talk about qualifications for elders and pastors, above reproach, husband of one wife, being self-controlled, they're able to teach. Those are the common things that we tend to focus on, and that's why Alex wrote the book, because there's a neglect in coming back to this One particular qualification we tend to just overlook. It's just kind of roll it up in the rest of them and assume it's getting done. And that's not necessarily the case, particularly if men today have bought into the idea that this is a women's issue. Okay? We also see in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, the same statement being made. He says there to Titus, Paul's writing, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. 
For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but, verse 8, hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And so Paul again affirms, for spiritual leaders, and particularly in this case elders, men, they are to be hospitable. Notice the contrast in the immediate context. They're not to be arrogant. That means proud, self-focused, committed to their own aim and agenda. And they're not to be greedy for gain. This has a lot to do with the idea of being generous. Are you just trying to gain more material or financial resources for yourself and hoard them? He says instead of being greedy for gain, we're to be hospitable, to share what we have, to be generous in nature, to meet the needs of others. We also see this command with regard to hospitality shared with us in Hebrews chapter 13. We can begin reading in verse 1. It says, let brotherly love continue. See the context? Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. And what's the allusion there? So that account of Abraham in the Old Testament, where he practiced hospitality, if you recall, and he did not know this because they were disguised to him, but they were angels sent by God to visit him. Now, some have said we need to practice hospitality because you never know when you're going to entertain angels. I don't think that's really the interpretation I would take away from this in that direct sense. But what he's referring to is here was an example of the patriarch of the nation of Israel who did practice hospitality. It was the common practice in the ancient world. And in this case, God used it as an occasion to minister to Abraham also. He goes on in verse 3, Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money. There it is again. And be content with what you have. Remember your leaders, verse 7, those who spoke to you the word of God, and consider the outcome of their way of life, and what? imitate their faith. So what's the context here? It's the practice of love towards others through the means of hospitality, and God will even bless you unexpectedly through that. But it's also requiring of those who practice it to be free from the love of money, okay? A selflessness, and to be content with what you have. If you're content with your needs being met, that means what you have above and beyond is something that's a resource, that you can entrust and share to meet the needs of others. And then the writer of Hebrews really punctuates this again with regard to looking at the example of leaders. He says, remember them, your leaders, who spoke to you the word of God and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So again, leaders in the church and in the home, men, particularly godly men, are to be examples of hospitality. Now, we see this also in 1 Peter chapter 4, in verse 9, or we start in verse 8 and read, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, 
Since love covers a multitude of sin, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now, this commandment is not limited to men in the church. It's a general commandment to all who are believers to practice hospitality, but it certainly includes men. Okay, It's not directed only to women. And I love the statement there, verse 9, show hospitality to one another, what? Without grumbling. God loves a what? A cheerful giver. It's a heart issue. Okay? It's a heart issue. Do you possess a heart of contentment that's eager to share what you've been entrusted with to meet the needs of others in a way that demonstrates the love of God? Additionally, we see in Romans chapter 12, this commandment stated this way, beginning in verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. It goes on to say, do not be haughty, but associate with who? The lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Certainly do not repay evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And he says in verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, do what? Feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Again, the commandment here is given generally to all God's people. Certainly includes men as leaders in this regard. But notice the full context here. It's those in the last days who are struggling and facing persecution. Okay, Paul's exhorting them. To live a godly life, he just said at the beginning of the chapter, present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. And then he goes on to explain, what does that look like in practice? And here at this time where those who gave their life to follow Christ were certainly going to be met with persecution and opposition, you could see a rationale being made to limit the demonstration of love to only those who love you in return. But instead... The commandment is given to practice hospitality and even to those who are your enemies. If you look at the broader context there. This is the radical nature of the love of God that was demonstrated towards us who were what? Once his enemies. And that's why he says, don't get caught up in avenging yourselves. Leave that to God. As a matter of fact, do just the opposite. If someone sins against you or someone has an offense against you or someone is persecuting you, entrust that to God and then you find a way to serve them. If your enemy is what? Hungry, feed them. Don't withhold generosity or hospitality to them. Feed even your enemies. And if they're thirsty, you give them something to drink. That's the radical nature of God's love towards us that believers have the occasion to practice when they think biblically. And they live in light of the gospel So what does the word hospitality mean? Very simply put, it's a compound word in the Greek as used in the text that we looked at. 
The two aspects of this word philos means loving. Or phileo, love. The word for love. The Greek word for love. Xenos means a stranger or a guest. Or one who is in need. Okay? It doesn't say just love your friends, does it? The word itself means love a stranger or a guest or somebody who has a need. And so this challenges us to expand our definition of hospitality between just entertaining our friends around our table. That's good. Don't misunderstand me. But it's not the full demonstration of biblical hospitality. And hospitality is primarily an issue that we see addressed again to male spiritual leaders. There is one exception to this, and it's interesting if you look at the context. It's found in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 10. I'll begin actually in verse 9. It says, Let a widow be taken care of if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works if she has brought up children has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. It's interesting, this one occasion, it is directed to women. But what kind of women? It's women who don't have a husband who's leading their home. It's still expected of them and affirmed in them that they continue to practice hospitality when the head of their home is no longer present, but they're still faithful as godly women to do that. And so here the admonitions make sure that those women are provided for and taken care of. Okay? Because that godly love is being demonstrated and practiced, but they have needs as well. So don't neglect to look out for them as they seek to be obedient to God. And so I want to argue this morning to you guys who are here, that the church's men must recover this characteristic or practice of hospitality in order for the church to be what God intended. And why is this necessary? Because the church is the household of God. We are primarily identified, yes, as the body of Christ, but also the language, family language is used, brothers and sisters. And this is recognizing the work of adoption on our behalf being brought in the family of God. Christ is our elder brother, who is um, the one whose example that we follow and that we've been brought into the family of God. This is the church. And so therefore, a man must lead his family to practice hospitality and then make sure the church itself practices it. And just by way of a personal testimony, uh, over the years, um, having had an opportunity to be involved in evangelistic opportunities, many times in doing outreach, particularly among those who would be people you might call fringe people. Maybe they're uh, homeless people. Maybe they're uh, living on the streets. Maybe uh, they're coming out of gangs. Maybe they're in other forms of uh, kind of backgrounds and history of, of growing up in difficult circumstances. And time and time again, I've extended an invitation to them to come to church. And this is what I've heard too often. I tried that once. And I said, well, why didn't you go back? They said, because as soon as I walked in, it was like everybody just took a step back from me. They were afraid of me. They were uncomfortable, you know, whether I was not as clean as they expected or I was all tatted up and they thought maybe they were going to be uh, 
uh, harmed or at risk. And as I've heard people describe their experience of going to church and being met with that, not welcome, but instead a retreat, it's in that moment that the church failed to practice biblical hospitality. But when we practice it as a church and we welcome them in, in essence what we're saying, look, we're no different. It's like Paul says to the Corinthians, such for you, okay? But we forget that the longer we're saved. We dress a little nicer, we have our lives a little bit more managed, we've got things more together, and we can subtly begin to think that we're better than those. But in God's eyes, we're exactly the same with regard to our sinful condition. And really, their physical manifestation of their brokenness and their affliction and their dependence should, instead of repel us, it should create in us what? A compassion, a sympathy. We should see ourselves in them and be reminded that God demonstrated his love towards us when we were in that same condition. That's why it's a problem when the church doesn't take biblical hospitality seriously or when individuals within the church are afraid to step and move towards people. Is it easy? Trust me, it's not. It will require some sacrifices. It will require some courage. It will require some faith. But as we'll see in a moment, those who do that are the ones that actually receive the blessing. And so when we cut ourselves off from ministering to those in need in this way, we actually cut ourselves off from experiencing the blessing of what God's doing in their lives and being a part of that. So we have some work to do. But if the leaders of the church aren't going to equip the church to live this way and to model this, you can see how a church becomes very ingrown. And I grew up in churches like that. It was like a social club. Matter of fact, I'll illustrate even further. My dad was a a real evangelist, and I grew up going out in those days. We did bus ministry, and we would go out on Saturday mornings to, uh, I lived down in Imperial County, which is near the Mexican border, and where farming is the main industry, and that means there's a lot of field workers, day workers that come across the border, uh, legal or illegal. That's not really the, the matter here. The fact is they were away from home. They were living in a foreign country. They were poor. And they lived in certain camps or housing developments outside our town. And my dad had a heart for them. So we would go on Saturday and invite the kids and often their parents to come to church. And we'd go back Sunday morning and pick them up and bring them to church. Typical Baptist church that I grew up in. A lot of good people. It wasn't that. They loved the Lord. They preached the sound gospel. But I wouldn't say that they were really characterized by biblical hospitality or an understanding of this. And over time, about a two-year period, the bus ministry grew. So a church of 300, 350 people who were used to seeing each other every month at the same potluck and same Bible studies and everything else, um, all of a sudden, one bus, one school bus, we added a second school bus, we added three vans, began to bringing people in who were from these impoverished Mexican families. And The leaders of that church came to my dad and said, you know, we really don't like these dirty Mexican kids running around. They're tearing up the church property. Or this really is becoming overwhelming to our church. It's becoming disruptive to life on Sunday. And they actually asked him to stop the bus ministry. Now, you might think I would see that as a young boy and grow up cynical about the church. And I'm thankful the Lord has guarded my heart against that. Instead, He's burdened me with a passion to encourage the church to not be guilty of that. 
I do remember as a young child not being able to reconcile. How can you justify the elders and leaders of a church stopping a ministry that was bringing in people who were getting saved and hearing the gospel, who were not in their home country. They were living in a really difficult kind of circumstance financially and economically. Their needs were great. But they also were estranged from their family and community at home. And the church basically just wanted to close its doors to those individuals. I like to tell you that's the only time I've seen that. Sadly, I've seen it repeated time and time again. Is it going to be messy? Yes. Is it going to be uncomfortable? Yes. Will it require steps of faith and courage to pursue people who are different than you? Yes. But if your mindset is this, how do I bring glory to God? By living a life that reflects the gospel, then you can see biblical hospitality is one of the richest and greatest opportunities a church has in its community. And I'm thankful for our church. There's so many expressions here of the elders and ministries through this church where biblical hospitality is demonstrated. And we'll see that before we're done today. But I just wanted to give you that context and maybe a word of why I'm motivated to address this because it's something I've had to learn and it's something I've had to teach. And I wouldn't say, uh, my wife's here to tell you, that I'm always faithful to this. I get comfortable, I get distracted, I get caught up in the busyness of my own Christian life. And so um, she helps me remember that this is something that we're called to do. I wrote a book not too long ago entitled Making Room, Recovering Hospitality as a Christian Tradition. It was written by a historian. Her name is Christine Pohl, and she decided to study the Christian tradition of hospitality. And she made this statement. She said, a life of hospitality begins in worship. I really like that. If you live in light of the gospel every day and you understand what God's done for you, your heart surges with gratitude and desire to glorify him. That leads you then to ask, what can I do with my time, energy, and resources to advance the wonderful message of reconciliation to others and to demonstrate that? So she says, a life of hospitality begins in worship with a recognition of God's grace and generosity. Hospitality is not first a duty and responsibility, is first a response of love and gratitude for God's love and welcome to us. And I put this quote in here because I do want to address that typically, uh, or I should say it this way, we have a tendency to be a little legalistic in our Christian lives. Uh, We're comfortable with a checklist of things to do, and particularly when we see imperatives in Scripture as commands. And what we can fail to understand or recognize is dealing with the motivation behind the commandment. The motivation here is one of understanding God's love for you. And that affects within your own heart as a desire for others to know him and be loved by him as well. And so if you're going to tell them about God's love, you also want to demonstrate God's love. And that is a life that brings him glory, and it's a life that leads to him being worshipped. But in this book that... uh, Christine authored, Making Room, she does a wonderful job, and it was helpful to me to go back and look at the eras of church history and who were the ones who were championing the practice of biblical hospitality. You have it there in your handout, but I want you to look at me with these quotes. We can go all the way back to the early era of the church. In the 300s, where Basil, or bishop, which is the word for elder, giving leadership to the church in Caesarea, he said this, hospitals, 
from the same Greek root word for hospitality, were first established in the 4th century. Sorry, he didn't say this. This is a statement regarding him. The first hospital to receive a substantial recognition was founded by Basil in 370 AD. In response to enormous suffering as a result of famine, Basil provided food and supplies to the poor and sick, combining personal respect with the supply of the necessity and so giving them a double relief. And I've come to really appreciate what it is that Basil focused on here. See, when you see those who are in need as no different than yourself spiritually, and you minister to them physically, you're coming to them with a measure of respect. Certainly we understand that they are made in the image of God and the sanctity of life. It doesn't matter if they're sick or infirmed or disabled or they're impoverished or even an, an addict in common day language to drugs or alcohol or whatever it might be. This is a person made in the image of God. And when you move towards them in compassionate care and love to meet their needs, you are treating them with respect. Okay? That is a gift. Over the years, I've also had the occasion to talk to people with disabilities. And if you talk to some particularly who are uh, wheelchair-bound, they will tell you that one of the most common experiences they have is even at church, people won't meet them, meet their eyes. They won't look at them in the eyes. You kind of just pass them by, or you might give a quick nod or, or a hello, but you aren't giving them respect. And it's partly because we're fearful or we're intimidated. We don't know what to say. We might say the wrong thing. We don't know what to do. And so we don't engage them in a genuinely human, face-to-face, eye-to-eye interaction. And one of the most powerful things you can do to somebody who's broken and hurting is to Yes, meet a physical need, but as you do that, meet them in such a way that demonstrates love towards them. Look them in the eye. If you're courageous enough, touch them on the arm, okay? And show the kindness and and gentleness of our Lord to people. This is what Basil was saying, and he called it a double relief. You've met both the physical need, but you met the relational need as well. What a gift that is. And the practice of hospitality is as much about extending that relationship as it is just meeting the need. So we don't want to be legalistic about this. We want to be those who truly demonstrate a heart of love and care. Gratian, who professed to be the Christian emperor at that time, of course this is post-Constantine and all of the Roman world, uh, came under the, the rule of the church in the sense of Christendom. Not to say that everybody in the church was a believer, don't misunderstand me. But Gratian said this, hospitality is so necessary in who? Bishops or elders, that if any are found lacking in it, the law forbid them to be ordained. How about that? That's how important it was in the ancient church. Even the emperor affirmed, if the pastors of the church, the elders don't practice this, they're not qualified. And you can see that that's taken directly from the admonitions in scripture and qualifications for elders. John Chrysostom, a little bit later, Bishop of Constantinople, today Istanbul, that was the center uh, of the church eventually. 
This was said about him. He urged his parishioners to make a guest chamber in their own houses, a place set apart for Christ, a place within which to welcome the maimed, the beggars, and the homeless. Recognizing that some Christians would hesitate to take strangers into their homes or guest rooms, Chrysostom suggested that they could, eat, could at least make a place in their household for a local poor person who was known to them. Now, this might sound radical to you, to just take in broken people and bring them into the shelter of your home, especially when you know there's a hotel down the road or there's a homeless shelter or things like that. But in the ancient world, these things didn't necessarily exist. The home was the only option. And it was a place that people demonstrated this kind of hospitality. It's something we have to contend with today. I'm familiar with a a church uh, in the Midwest who their pastor was preaching through these principles. And they particularly had a a heart for unwed mothers, single moms. Uh, They didn't just have a crisis pregnancy outreach, but they actually provided care for that single mom, particularly if her family put her out back then when it was shameful and and the boyfriend abandoned her and so forth. But they realized not everybody could just take in a single mom and all the obligations that came with that. So their church actually went as far. They had a lot of property in the Midwest. You can get away with this. Uh, And they actually raised the funds to build a home on the campus of their church for unwed mothers, that they provide discipleship and care for the church. And then families were able to have them into their home, yes, but also help them practically through um, being in community with one another and caring for them. So there are solutions to this. I'm not saying to every young woman in the room, pick up hitchhikers and bring them home because they're holding a sign. Uh, it does require wisdom, okay? And men, if you're to lead your homes, I'm not saying that you should just invite every stranger into your home without regard to its implications or risks. At the same time, I am challenging you to not be so paralyzed by fear or use that as a justification that we make no effort to find solutions or to find ways to minister to people in need. And together, collectively, we're able actually to pull our resources together and do much more as the body of Christ than even just one family. But really, it's a heart issue. If you're selfish or you're fearful or whatever it is, you won't even consider meeting the need, and it'll be easy to justify reasons not to do that. So we're challenged by those from church history. Let's go on. Isidore of Seville, he's the bishop of Seville in the 500s. He said, a layman has fulfilled the duty of hospitality by receiving one or two guests. A bishop, however, unless he shall receive everyone, is inhuman. And what's he doing here? He's, again, keeping the focus on the leaders of the church. He says, don't just let your lay people do it. You better do it, too. As a matter of fact, you better set a, a stronger example in this regard for them to follow. So names that are more familiar to as we come to the time of Reformation, Martin Luther certainly. Um, this is a statement from him. He said, Godly hosts offered hospitality as an act of obedience, a practical response to human need. They did not expect reward or special encounters with God as they welcomed strangers. And what he's getting at here is there is a blessing that comes in obedience to God. There is often a blessing of fellowship that comes in when you hear the testimony of what God does in the life of a needy person. There's, there's many blessings. But your motivation isn't to get something. It's to give something. That's what he's pointing out here. It's not just for personal benefit. It's just the opposite. It's the benefit of your neighbor. Calvin, John Calvin, of course, pastoring in Geneva, 
Mourning the demise of ancient hospitality, Calvin said this, The office of humanity has nearly ceased to be properly observed among men. For the ancient hospitality celebrated in histories is unknown to us, and inns now supply the place of accommodations for strangers. What's happened in the world by this time? If you study uh, things from a, a social and economic perspective, by this time, people were traveling more frequently, if not by ship, particularly by stagecoach across the continent of Europe. And what developed in time was stagecoach stops, just like you've heard about in the Old West here. And at those stops, which were basically a day's journey by horse or carriage, there would be an inn, and it would be a place to shelter those who came by stagecoach. Okay? They stayed in the inn, meals were provided, and shelter and care. And so what Calvin is saying is now there's a secular industry that's providing for the needs of those who are travelers, sojourners, or strangers. And we've come to rely on that instead of being willing to open our own homes. That's what Calvin's pointing to. It was something that had developed by that point in the world. That's true for us today, certainly. When you look at that first slide I put up and you think about the hospitality industry, you can go to booking.com, hotel.com, you can go anywhere, uh, Expedia, and you can find a hotel room anywhere in the country or an Airbnb. And all of a sudden, this becomes the norm and expectation for believers, for people who might have a, a need for housing or a welcome at your table. And so um, it's not anything new. It was something that Calvin pointed to. John Owen, the great Puritan, ministering there in Oxford uh, in England, said in the younger days of the world, hospitality was offered to needy strangers. But with us, it is applied unto a bountiful, and it may be profuse entertainment of friends, relations, neighbors, and acquaintances, and the like. And so what Owen is saying is there was a time in the history of the church that they practiced biblical hospitality. But again, today, we've kind of made the focus more on inviting our friends over. Yes, that's a good thing. There's no admonition against that. Matter of fact, there's encouragement in the New Testament to encourage fellowship like this. But what they're pointing to is the exclusive focus on only demonstrating hospitality towards those you know, or you know intimately, or you know by way of um, your, your social network. Uh, that are just close to you. Samuel Johnson wrote this as we come to the 1700s, or said this, you are to consider that ancient hospitality, of which we hear so much, was in an uncommercial country, when men being idle were glad to be entertained at rich men's tables. But in a commercial country, a busy country, time becomes precious, and therefore hospitality is not so much valued. And though Samuel Johnson said this in the 1700s, it's just as much, if not more, true of us today. In a commercial country, a, a busy country, if you think about our, our work days and the length of them and how far we commute and, and how occupied we are with the demands that come to us through internet access and emails, and we're so busy. Time becomes precious to us, and therefore hospitality is not so much valued as our own personal time. And so this competes with today's believer in making space or time or room for the welcoming of others and the meeting of needs. Well, John Wesley, you certainly recognize his name as well. 
He said this, For I myself, as well as the other preachers who are in town, we diet or eat with the poor on the same food and at the same table. And we rejoice herein as a comfortable earnest of our eating bread together in our Father's kingdom. And here, Wesley makes a couple observations that we can learn from. One is setting the example. One of the things that's often done to pastors and elders or or leaders and even husbands, it could be true of us in our homes, we're treated like kings. And sometimes we're treated in such a fashion, even when people are being kind and hosting us, that we expect them to wait on us. We expect them to give to us uh, the best cut of meat or uh, the gourmet meal. Or, you know, people are so kind to us and generous, they want to give us their best, but it becomes an expectation And what Wesley is saying, you know what I like to do? I like to just go and sit with the regular person. I'm not looking for special treatment. I want to engage with them, know them, respect them. And so I think one of the things we can do, men, is to make sure that we don't expect to be waited on hand and foot. But we actually look for those opportunities where we can just engage with people just like us and not setting ourselves apart. I was speaking to one of our missionaries who teaches at one of our training centers in an African country. And we were talking about the opportunity for discipleship with those students. And he said, it's really difficult because what they do when I come is they always set a head table. And that's a, sh- a sign of honor for them to set this head table. Because, but I end up sitting there with me and the fellow missionaries. And he said, what I want to do is I want to get up from that table and I want to go sit with the students. And hear what God's doing in their life and engage with them. And I love that that was his heart to do, but he had to actually spend time with the leaders there who kept imposing that on them. And they had to educate even the students there who were pastors to say, look, don't treat us in such a a formal and special way. We want to be with you. We want to sit at the table with you and to eat the same food at the same table. So, Just a reminder to us guys, it's easy to be spoiled, and we want to make sure that doesn't become a demand or an expectation on our part that then compromises our example or testimony, okay? All right, well, when we think about hospitality in the ancient world, there are three things that were really dominant when you think about people who were in need, and one is the idea of reciprocity, reciprocity. In the ancient world, hospitality was practiced, not just by the children of Israel, not just uh, in the New Testament by believers. It was built into the ancient Near East cultural dynamic, and it was the practice of hospitality. And so if you were traveling somewhere and you didn't have a place to stay, you wanted to find safe refuge, right? You wanted to find your needs met, a meal being met, and so forth. And so the idea was you welcome a stranger because you might find yourself traveling and you expect them to reciprocate by meeting the same need. So the whole practice of hospitality in the ancient world was built on this reciprocity. It wasn't a selfless practice of hospitality. It was, I'll do it and expect something in return. Okay, You need to understand that because, as we're going to see in a moment, That idea gets confronted by James in the New Testament church. See, if biblical hospitality is to demonstrate God's heart and care for those who can't earn or merit or deserve that grace and kindness, meaning they don't have anything to offer, there's a problem with only practicing hospitality according to the rule of reciprocity. God doesn't practice it towards us that way. 
and he doesn't want us to practice it that way towards others. But it did exist as a necessity in the ancient world, but those who were not sanctified, those who were not redeemed, didn't have the ability to have the heart, right heart motive in it, and so it just became the normal practice by you scratch my back and I'll scratch your back kind of thinking. Okay, So reciprocity is a big idea. The other is protection. There's just a need in a world where you're traveling and you're vulnerable to attack or violent assault. And here we can think about the occasion in the book of Luke of the story of the, what, Good Samaritan. Traveling up from Jericho up to Jerusalem, that was a dangerous road. And what happens? There's a Jewish man who is robbed, he's beat up, he can't care for himself. And who comes along? The Samaritan, who was actually despised and hated because he was half Gentile by the Jews. He's the one that showed what? Love for neighbor. That is the question Christ is answering in the text. Who's loving his neighbor? And here he's pointing to the Samaritan who demonstrates godly love towards somebody who's need who can't reciprocate. That's a picture of God's love. And so in the ancient world, protection was necessary. And as we've already alluded to, also provision. Okay? There wasn't you know, a chain of McDonald's on every street corner. Okay? You're traveling all day. Your camels or your horses or your mules or goats, whatever livestock you had, are thirsty. That's why often you see when you go to the Old Testament, you see the accounts of going to the center place where the wells were and asking those who were drawing water to feed my camels or to feed my livestock. You were dependent upon somebody else to provide that for you when you weren't at home. So with that in mind, Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology helps us in understanding really what hospitality was in the ancient world. We read this, the plight of aliens was desperate. Aliens is somebody who is a sojourner, a pilgrim, somebody who is even from a far country or a country not of your own who's traveling. The plight of aliens was desperate. They lacked membership in the community, be it tribe, city, state, or nation. As an alienated person, the traveler often needed immediate food and lodging. Widows, orphans, the poor, or sojourners from other lands lacked the familial or community status that provided a landed inheritance, the means of making a living, and protection. In the ancient world, the practice of hospitality meant graciously receiving an alienated person into one's land, home, or community, and providing directly for that person's needs. Okay? This is hospitality in the ancient world, and the foundation for understanding its focus for the church. With that in mind, we just want to note a couple things. What was the mission of Israel? Okay. These are God's people. He had called them to himself in a covenant commitment. He brought them out of Egypt at the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 6. He gives them a mission statement or a purpose for the nation. And he says there, If you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so he says in Exodus chapter 19, this is your purpose, okay? You are to be a kingdom of priests, and priests are mediators between sinful men and a holy God. So what he's saying is you as a nation are to be mediators between me, Jehovah, 
and the citizens of the Gentile nations. You're to be a means and an instrument to function as priests. And he embedded in their worship practice in the tabernacle system, eventually the temple, the role of a priest. He called out the tribe of Levi, remember that? And they were to serve on behalf of whom? The other 11 tribes, not just for themselves. So this is the idea that he's saying to the nation of Israel, the covenant blessing is not just for you. According to what he states in Genesis chapter 12 in the Abrahamic covenant, he says, I'm going to bless you, but through you I will bless all the families or the nations of the earth. Israel was called to be an instrument, a means for the advancement of the glory of God, okay, and to be a testimony to him. But he says, if you're going to do this, then you have to live as a nation in a godly way. You need to be a holy people. You need to govern your social life, your personal life in accord with the character of God. And then what happens in Exodus chapter 20? He gives them the law. And yes, we know the law is a tutor to reveal to us our inability to meet God's holy standard, but it was also given to the nation of Israel to guide them in how to live in a fashion that was consistent with the character of God. And we begin to see embedded in the law, as you look at it in the book of Deuteronomy and particularly Leviticus, time and time again, the Jews are commanded through the law to practice hospitality towards those who were in need. This is how you put God's character on display in the ancient world. Leviticus 19, verses 33 through 34, says this, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Again, in Leviticus 25, verse 35, he says, If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. What's the principle? Embedded in the life of the children of God, the nation of Israel was an expectation that you treated the person who is in need according to this principle of welcoming a stranger, an alien. Those that you would be tempted to despise or see as your enemy, you actually treat as a friend. And even today, as an expression of the commands given to the nation of Israel, you see among the Jewish people, Orthodox Jewish people, still setting a place setting at their table, an empty place setting as a reminder that this is to be a table that welcomes the guests. Matter of fact, in the Passover Seder practiced by Jewish people today, they will set a place for a guest and say as part of the Seder, let all who are hungry come and eat. It was that established in the Jewish culture, they're thinking about extending a welcome. When we come to the New Testament, we can look at 1 Peter chapter 2, where that same mission given to Israel is restated to the church, where he says in verse 9 of chapter 2, you, the church, Peter writing, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, who? God who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then he goes on to say, I urge you now, 
as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable, so that they may speak, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We had just read earlier, later in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9, that Peter goes on to say, practice or show hospitality to one another. What's Peter saying here? Here the church is scattered throughout the known world, the, the Russian Empire. I'm sorry, the Roman Empire. Um, they're scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and they're facing persecution, right? And they're being commanded to practice hospitality. But Peter picks up on a theme that Paul shares with us that we see in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. At 20, he says, we are what? Citizens of heaven. This is no longer our home. So our entire identity now as the children of God are as what? Sojourners. We are aliens. This is not our home. We have a home that we've been invited to and welcomed. Not because we deserve it, because God's gracious. And so now we want to treat other aliens and sojourners in this world just like God has treated us. That's what Peter's saying. This is how you declare the excellencies of God. This is how you proclaim and demonstrate the excellent character of God, or if you will, the radical love of God. Now turn with me to James chapter 2. I want you to see this in this particular text. Very familiar text to you. I won't belabor it too much, but I want you to see this principle James, of course, is the pastor of the church and authoring this epistle. We see that he brings an exhortation, really a confrontation, to what is occurring within the walls of the church. Let's begin reading in verse 1. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place or a place of honor, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. If you jump down to verse 13... (laughs) He says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I won't take the time, but in the next few verses, then he begins to unfold for us what does this kind of care look like. If someone's poorly clothed and doesn't have their daily food, what do you do? Do you just say, be warmed and filled, God bless you? You just nod at them and walk right by? No. You take what you have and you share that with them. Now, it's interesting because this is certainly the testimony of the early church. Same church. The church that was birthed at Pentecost, right? 
And on that day, over 3,000 people came to faith in Christ. And if you read through the book of Acts, you begin to see that thousands and thousands were added to this church. This was a megachurch, if you will, the first megachurch. And why were there so many people in Jerusalem? Because they had come to celebrate the Passover. We read in Acts chapter 2 that these were Jewish proselytes. Some were Jews who'd been scattered abroad, but many were Gentiles who had converted to Judaism and had come from these foreign countries to be there in the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And that is the occasion that God birthed the church. In large part, it was to demonstrate that this church is not limited to the Jews, but to be for the Gentiles as well. But what it practically meant is there are a lot of sojourners, aliens, in the church in Jerusalem. They weren't in their home country. I'm sure many of them chose to stay in Jerusalem because that's where the teaching was, and they wanted to be fed and discipled and equipped. That meant they didn't have a livelihood. They couldn't work. Okay? So the church in Jerusalem needs to be understood. It was a church filled with aliens and sojourners. And many of them, because they didn't have the opportunity to continue working, there was kind of an overburden, burdening of the church and kind of the social system in Jerusalem. They were poor. And what does Acts chapter 2 tell us in verse 42 and following? They shared all things in common. Those who had things, they sold it and they gave it away to meet the needs of who? Mostly sojourners. Okay? Now, James confronts that same church and says, you've forgotten the work that God's done among us. He says, now what you're doing is you're showing partiality. And so when the one who comes in with financial resources and is dressed in a way that identifies them as being rich, what do you do? You treat them with honor. You give them the seat of honor. Okay? They had fallen back into practicing the idea of reciprocity. I'll treat these people with favor because I can get something from them. And what James is confronting here is he's saying, when you start to do that, you're living in a way that's contrary and actually violates the gospel message. You're living in a way that is utterly irreconcilable with the love of God. God is not a respecter of persons. Okay? We are all equal coming to Christ. It required the same of us in coming to faith, and that was to humble ourselves and confess there is nothing we can do. We are wholly dependent upon the grace and mercy of God. And so what he's confronting his church is you begin to practice this very sinful attitude and demonstration of hospitality like those who in the secular world practice it. But we're the church, and we've experienced something radically different. Please don't fall back into that. And so he confronts it. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say, look, God's at work among the poor. The poor, particularly, are people who've been stripped of everything. They, they have no auspices to hide behind it, to believe that they are worthy of any kind of mercy and, and kindness of God. They're utterly dependent. And therefore, the greater depth of their dependence allows for them, when they come to know God, to manifest a greater depth of faith in God. And this is the secret blessing that comes to us when we relate to those who are poor and we care for them. We actually get to fellowship with people whose faith may be greater than our own. We're used to relying on our bank accounts, our credit cards, and everything else. Okay? But somebody who's broken and has none of those kinds of things and is so dependent upon the kindness and grace of someone to meet their physical need lest they die, that's how severe it was in the ancient world, you begin to understand that they trust God 
And when their needs are met, they understand that he is the one who has provided for them. You may be the means and the instrument, which is a joy to be a part of, but their faith is in God, not in you. And so he says they're rich in faith. And don't forget, they're heirs of the kingdom too. Okay? And we all have been promised the riches of God's kindness and mercy upon us. And so there's much here in this text to understand, but I want to give you a point from the context. If you go back up to James chapter 1, verse 27, we see that James makes this statement just before he confronts his church. He says, verse 26, let's start there. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And religion is, that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We've all heard that verse many, many times, right? And I have to admit, it, every time I read it, I thought, boy, how do you reduce the Christian life to these two things? I get, I get the idea of, of being pure and undefiled before God. That's purity and holiness and righteousness. I get that. That's fair. But you're going to reduce everything else to this idea of just caring for widows and orphans, yes, that's a wonderful and noble thing, but I struggled with that, and it really concerned me enough to begin to study this text particularly. And as I did, I began to understand that James, speaking to a church that had understood Judaism and the law, okay, when he spoke to them, in essence, in this verse, 120 said, he's speaking shorthand to them, right? He's summarizing everything. Purity, holiness, righteousness, and demonstrating love and care, okay? But when they heard visit widows and orphans, what they heard as a congregation that knew the Old Testament and the law, they heard the motif of the poor that includes not only the orphans and widows, but there are five components of the motif of the poor in the Old Testament. Yes, widows and orphans, but also the alien or stranger, the sick and blind, Okay, the infirmed, and the prisoner. All five categories of people are included in the motif of the poor. So when this congregation heard that, they knew that motif. And as you go back and begin to look through Scripture, you begin to understand that this is exactly what the Jews were called to. But now, James is saying, we need to, as a church, demonstrate care for all those who are part of this motif, widow, orphan, alien, sick, and the prisoner. The Jewish audience only need to hear the phrase orphan and widow to be reminded of God's voice throughout their own history. And God always instructed the nation of Israel to demonstrate his character of mercy to those who are the most at risk, the most at risk. When we look at the word poor in the Old Testament, we see that uh, the two Hebrew words, ani, meaning socially defenseless, physically oppressed, and surviving from day to day. Or dal or dala, meaning the low, the helpless weak, reduced to utter poverty. It's kind of looking at the class, the other is looking at the condition. But these are people who don't just have less money than you do, they have nothing. They're the lowest of the lowest. They are utterly dependent upon the kindness of another. And we see this as well in the New Testament words for the poor, and even used here by James. The two Greek words are pentecost, which emphasizes the complete dependence and reliance upon others' good will 
for life-sustaining resources, or tokos, meaning destitute without any resources or ability to help oneself. So when the word poor is used in Scripture, it's used in this very specific way. These are people who are utterly helpless, to the point that if somebody doesn't intervene on their behalf and, and meet their need, they will die. Now, doesn't that relate exactly to our condition spiritually? If Christ didn't intervene and provide what we would need, we would utterly die spiritually in that perspective. But the love of God demonstrated towards us through his beloved son and the gospel message. And so when we care for those in this condition, we particularly have the opportunity to put the gospel on display. Now let me speak for a moment about the example of Christ. It's interesting, if you go back to the text Steve Lawson cited earlier this morning, Isaiah chapter 61, where the Messiah is promised, we know that the language used by Isaiah is language that is inclusive of these five categories of the poor, the motif of the poor. And so by the time that Christ comes and he begins his earthly ministry, he does this by going into the synagogue at Nazareth. You remember the occasion? And he takes the scrolls and he opens them and he begins to read. This is found in Luke chapter 4. And here's what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. How does Christ identify himself as the Messiah, the one who's going to be the ultimate deliverer of the gospel itself? By citing Isaiah 61, verse 1. And in that statement, what Isaiah is prophesying is the one who would come and set the captive free. The one who's enslaved to the law of sin. This is the very language Paul uses to describe us being set free from the law of sin. We're described as those who are what? Who, are, who require healing. We are the ones who are blind and need our eyes open spiritually to the truth of the gospel. We are those who are prisoners who are bound and need to be set free. And so Christ uses this very motif. And then in his earthly ministry, we see in Matthew chapter 9, he modeled it. In chapter 9, verses 35, we read, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and, as he proclaimed it, healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then I love this. What's his response? It wasn't to say we have to heal everybody or solve every economic issue or feed every hungry people. He did those things. But that wasn't his definition of the kingdom, and that wasn't his earthly ambition. Those things were to demonstrate his compassion and his love and point to the greater spiritual reality of what he could heal and the needs that he would provide. And verse 37 says, He said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. 
Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. Christ consistently communicated the gospel, but he did it in proximity to those who were broken and needy as he ministered to them and pointed to the greater spiritual reality. Who were the people he engaged? The Samaritans? Consider the enemies of the Jews. He showed kindness and compassion towards them. Mary Magdalene, some consider a prostitute, or Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the thief on the cross, the lepers, the blind, the lame, and the diseased. The list goes on and on to the point where he was cynically described by the Pharisees as what? A friend of sinners. Praise God, our Savior is a friend of sinners. Broken, impoverished, diseased, imprisoned people spiritually. And he went on in Luke chapter 14, and he told a story. And the story is about a banquet that follows a marriage. If you had the time to look at that text in Luke 14, verses 12 through 24, you would see that this is a picture, again, of the kingdom, a story that Christ is telling to help us understand. And and the invitation to attend the wedding feast is extended. We read this in verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Hear it? Reciprocity. That's the world's standards. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be paid at the resurrection of the just. And then he goes on to say, when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent a servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. They first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master sent him out again to compel more people to come. When you look at this text, Christ is saying, This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. I have a son. And he's the bridegroom. And his people have been invited into that relationship with him and the celebration feast. This is a picture of heaven. But the ones who rejected the invitation in the context that Christ is speaking were the Pharisees who felt like they had no need of the invitation or the kindness or mercy. They were self-sufficient. So they rejected the invitation. But who responded to the invitation? the ones who are desperate. And what he's saying to the the Pharisees and those who are proud, he says, listen, those who come to the kingdom are the ones who acknowledge their desperation and their dependence upon me. And he uses this beautiful picture of hospitality at the very marriage feast in heaven. He goes on in another occasion in Matthew 8 using a similar example, and he says, here it's even going to be those Gentiles who come from the east and west to recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. 
Well, we need to wrap up. And the reason I gave you a handout is I want you to think about some things. We have to ask a critical question of ourselves as families and as members of the church. If one of the greatest opportunities to demonstrate the gospel in practice is to those who are poor, then who are the poor in our community? One of the greatest things about the church is the fellowship and relationship that it affords us as members of the body of Christ, but it can keep us so occupied that the walls of the church become like that basket that Christ describes in in Matthew chapter 5 that is set over the light of the lamp. We've got to look and ask the question, who are the widows? Who are the orphans? Who are those who are in need in our community? And pray and ask God how we might step forward. You can't do it all. You're not asked to do it all. The simple question is, what could you do to find space in your life to reach out and to serve these needs? I don't have time to give you all the statistics, but you can go online, you can do your own homework. And if you look at every one of these categories, and there's more categories under those major headings, you would find in the city of Los Angeles there are thousands and hundreds of thousands of people that fall into these categories. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we serious about practicing biblical hospitality? Whether it's adoption of orphans or foster care, and I praise God for those in our church who do that, that's a beautiful picture of the gospel. We praise the Lord for that, are those who are part of safe families. There are those who are involved in our widow's ministry and doing outreach, but think about not just widows because their husbands died. What about the functional widows, the single moms? Think about those who are victims of domestic violence, not provided the protection and shelter and provision of a loving husband. Who's ministering to them? Think about the aliens and the immigrants. Listen, there are 240 languages spoken in the city of Los Angeles. Okay? Whether they're legal or illegal, that's not my concern. Our concern as a church needs to be, do they know Christ? There are serious issues in our immigration process, and there's a place for us to engage and solve that. But there's also a place for us just to minister to them and not withhold ministry because someone's here illegally. It may be the very opportunity to bring them to Christ. And so we have to think certainly sick in healthcare ministries and outreach, and then our prison ministry and so forth. And our church is filled, whether you know or not, of people who come to faith in Christ from these categories. Some of you, that may be true as well. And aren't you thankful? that you found a home here in the family of God. And so we need to think about what we can do as families, as Bible studies, as fellowship groups, and as a church to be obedient to practicing biblical hospitality. And as I said, and as we close, there is. If your heart's pure and you give sacrificially, generously, humbly, there are many blessings that will come to you. Will it be easy? No. It will be costly, I promise you, okay? There will be hardship and trials and things that come with ministering to people in those populations because they've suffered. There's hardship. Sometimes they have baggage that comes with them. But the church has the answer for all those effects and realities of sin and the promise to take an individual, no matter what their past circumstances, and seem to be restored to God and sanctified through the work and ministry of his spirit, his his word, and his people. That is a great way to live. And this is what 
the scriptures call us to. Let me close this. Father, thank you for the opportunity to consider, though not exhaustively, just uh, an overview of this theme of biblical hospitality. I confess that it's easy for me not to have the right heart or even be purposed in practicing this. So I pray, Lord, that you would take our time and cause it to have its intended effect through the ministry of your spirit and the discussion with family and friends to simply ask the question, who are the poor in our context and how can we show them your love? And I pray that you would use each of us to see the wonderful message of the gospel advanced. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.